people like, oh, why would somebody join a cult? Well, they don't join a cult, they join a family. That, and people were literally like hippies off the street in Huntington Beach were literally joining my parents' family. What's shaking? Welcome back. Today, we're going to talk with someone who wrote a book called The Sex Cult Nun. Are you ready for this? Because buckle up, buckle up. When we dive into this, you're going to want to share this with three people because this is just going to blow your mind today. We're going to have a lot of fun and we're also going to get really down and have some real talk too. So today, my guest, her goal is to see people united and empowered because really of her life story. And again, she's the author of The Sex Cult Nun, TEDx speaker, and creator of the 10 Golden Principles of Integrity, Faith Jones, welcome. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. I'm so like happy your intro. to have you on. Get down and dance. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we like to rock this a bit here. So tell me, your book is based upon what you've gone through, right? And where, where should we start? Because, I mean, the book title in and of itself is just incredible, right? It's meant to capture pe people's attention. And what is the basis of the whole thing? You know, how did you get into this? I, I saw on the cover you had a male symbol too, which was intriguing to me because of the juxtaposition of a sex cult nun, but then you have a male. It's a female symbol, actually. Oh, it is. I'm it's, sorry. It is the it's female It's a female symbol, symbol on, a, um, on, a, on a fish hook. So, uh, That's and this awesome. is. It's kind of, it's expressing the exploitation of women. And particularly there was a practice within this uh, organization called 30 Fishing, which I can explain a little bit about. So yeah. then you'll understand that, that symbol. Um, uh, so I guess jumping into it, the book is about my life growing up in a cult that was actually founded by my family my grandfather, my, my parents, um, and it was founded in 1968 in mm. California, in Huntington Beach, and uh, eventually, shortly thereafter, spread all over the world. Uh, it was in over 100 countries with uh, over 10,000 members for decades, and um, it's Really, my question, I, I didn't leave. So I was born into this group. This was all I knew. And I didn't leave till I was in my early 20s. Mm. And uh, of course, you know, I knew everybody else called us a cult, but <laughs> we were not a cult. We were a religious movement. We were God's elite end time army, you know, that kind of stuff. And so it really took a long time after I left for me to understand what had happened to me in the group, um, for me to understand uh, the aspects of it being a cult. And so I wanted to tell the story, not only to give people a, a peek or a window inside of a very secretive group, and there has been quite a bit written about it, but uh, and there's been quite a few documentaries done on it, but always done in kind of the looking back, you know, like mm. I got out and these are the bad things that happened to me and I'm looking back on my life. Right. Um, and I remember, I remember, uh, I actually read the glass castle not long after I left when I was in college. And I thought, I just love the way that she wrote about her life. And I said, you know, if I ever write a book, I'm going to write it like that. Cause I want to write about it 
in the moment. I mean, I love to read novels. I love that immediacy of being right there, you know, with the character going through it, not, you know, oh, this happened to me 20 years ago or 40 years ago, right? So I wanted to write it in the moment because I also wanted to give people a window into how I thought at the time, how people within the group thought or felt about what was happening and what they were doing versus a look back, which is when, you, when you're looking back on something, you have to have a judgment about it, you know, versus saying, okay, no, this is what we thought and felt in the moment. And Are you specifically um, speaking to maybe some of the brainwashing? Well, so as the brainwashing, yes, um, although brainwashing is kind of a, a, a uh, unscientific term, perhaps, um, but specifically to the, uh, there were different sexual practices, things that I experienced in the group, right? And there was different kinds of abuse, which now I look back and I say, well, that was abuse. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's just no question, right? Um, but at the time, I didn't think so, and I didn't know it. And so, how do people engage in um, sometimes terrible abuses or submit themselves to it? and not realize it, right? They think they're doing the right thing. It's a very strange mindset. And I wanted to give people a window into kind of what that was like, what that world was like. Yeah, and it was a submission, right? Because you're bought into the ideologies of what's going on. It wasn't necessarily anything that was, well, if you want to use the word force, but forced as traditional rape would be considered or something like that. It wasn't that it was more submissive because of the ideologies, correct? Uh, yes, but I want to, I want to change the way we think about rape, right? So that's another important aspect of this yeah. is if, um, and it wasn't something, and I, I talk about this, you know, sort of my realizations when I got into college and, you know, law school and things like that. But um, I realized that the things that I had experienced were rape, but I didn't know it at the time. So, for instance, if you're pressured into having sex and you don't want to with someone you don't want to, but you're pressured into it through fear of punishment, um, you know, fear that you're going to have to go through a public, you know, humiliation, breaking, um, be put on probation or whatever that is because you're unyielded, right? So, the way it happened in the group was, um, and we should probably get into a little bit more about the uh, <laughs> aspects of the group and the beliefs and so on. Otherwise, you're not going to understand what I'm saying oh, now. Yeah, we will. Yeah, so we're we'll, kind of we'll. jumping ahead a little bit. But um, but when you think about it, uh, it wasn't like they would say, "Okay, if like I like uh, there's a story in the book when I'm in Kazakhstan, and I this book takes you all over the world because I lived in so many countries. <laughs> so there's a story in the book when I'm in Kazakhstan and I'm a teenager. I'm like maybe 18." And uh, the shepherd in the home, the leader is telling me I need to sleep with this young man in the home. And I don't want to. And I really don't. I, you know, I, I'm kind of repulsed by that idea. Um, but because I keep avoiding it, then I get uh, I get into a situation where they're, they're like having a public prayer over me for my unyieldedness. And, you know, I'm put into like a very difficult, emotional kind of traumatic situation. And it's not like they're saying, if you don't have sex with a person, we're going to punish you. But if you don't have sex with a person, you're unyielded to God. Therefore, we're going to punish you. See? So, that's sort of how that, that trajectory. That's how the trajectory goes. And yeah. so, um, 
when I realized years later, uh, when I was at Georgetown, actually, and talking to my then boyfriend, uh, who was a lawyer, and he, when I described it to him, he was like, well, that's rape, you know, that's rape. If you're, if you feel pressured or coerced into it, somebody doesn't have to physically hold you down. Um, even if you walk into that room willingly, that's still rape. And this goes to um, a lot of, uh, well, you know, for instance, human trafficking victims, right? They're put in a situation where they can't say no, where they will be punished and they have to look like that they're there, you know, um, and that it's okay with them and they're enjoying it or whatever. But obviously that is rape and abuse and, you know, it's not, that's not consensual. So yeah, similar scenarios to like you were saying too, to where it's, it's not necessarily punishment for not doing that exact thing, but there's a roundabout way with almost one degree of separation to something else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's emotional and, and psychological manipulation. And abuse. Yeah. So, um, but let's get back to a little bit more about the, the book, the story, just so you people can yeah. get maybe a little more of a background in there. <laughs> How old were you when, when the cult was started by your parents? Your grandfather. I wasn't born yet. You it was before well. I was born. Yeah. So it was started in 1968. So wow. That, wow. Yet. Goodness. <laughs> so you were literally born um, into this then. I was literally born into it. Yes. In Hong Kong. Um, my parents had gone out there. Uh, so part of the messages of the group, um, and this is the interesting thing. People don't realize about cults, right? People are like, oh, why would somebody join a cult? Well, they don't join a cult. They join a family. That, and people were literally like hippies off the street in Huntington Beach were literally joining my parents' family, like my grandparents' family, right? My granddad, and he became dad to all of them. And eventually he became grandpa to like the whole, you know, so creating this kind of false sense of family and intimacy. Um, and so, you know, these are young kids looking for purpose, looking for a sense of belonging, and very idealistic, many of them very smart from good families. They were not like, yeah. you know, the trash. And so people ask, well, how, why does this happen? And in fact, uh, studies have been done that the kind of people more likely to join cults are people who are intelligent, good natured, um, and idealistic. They want something more. And that's not what most people would think mm. of, of, you know, the kind of people that, that, that would join cults. So, you know, after I left years later and I, I realized, I was like, wow, this is some stuff that was really messed up. You know, there was, um, well, I'll go into some of that. But um, I began to ask myself, why, like, what went wrong? How did these very idealistic people, I mean, these people were willing to sacrifice everything. It was not like they were living, uh, you know, in the Ritz, you know, yeah. just super basic um, you know, people were sleep when they would join, they'd be sleeping on the floor, like just, you know, working, they'd be memorizing scriptures for hours a day, study. Like, this was not, this was like, they, they're considered like military lifestyle barracks. Did a um, lot of these intelligent people, as you describe them, did they come from more affluent backgrounds? They came from all different, a whole, a wide range, but yeah, yeah, oftentimes they did. So, you know, they were they wanted to serve God. They wanted to serve humanity. They wanted to create a new society, you know, that was their, this was their vision. So I was like, well, how did that go so wrong? What happened? What was the seed of corruption that um, ended up putting them on this path that got them to this place where they were just, 
you know, it was just some terrible things were happening. And so that's what I finally figured out. And we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, but before then, let's talk a bit about the a bit about some of the some of the beliefs because people don't always understand. So it was it was a, ultimately a fundamentalist uh, Christian cult, uh, except that my grandfather, who uh, considered himself the end time prophet, the prophet of the last days, and getting revelations from God, that he, uh, he that you know he would hear from God in prophecy and. Basically, all of his words were recorded and sent out to the group as letters because very early on, he had to go into hiding from the authorities. Oh, sure. Um, you said this was founded in Hong Kong, right? No, no. It was founded in California. It was, okay. In California. You were yes, my it. parents, they moved to Hong Kong. Um, so, one of the other tenants was everyone had to for forsake everything, give up their lives, give up mm -hmm. their families, all their possessions, and be full-time missionaries. So it meant that this uh, spread very, very fast. They moved in and they lived, we lived communally. Nobody had jobs, so they could devote themselves full-time to the work. You had to live off of donations. So people ended up moving to all these countries, India, Brazil, everywhere, and you know, often very poor countries. So it wasn't like they were, you know, and then trying to live off of donations. <laughs> you yeah, know, it was a pretty yeah. tough life. Um, and, but that was so that they could devote themselves full time to preaching, uh, preaching the gospel. Uh, now, where did it start to kind of get, uh, now that sounds like pretty, you know, okay. You know, you're out, you're out there, but you're, that's not, not like too weird. Hardcore right? Baptist or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Right. Very hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> doing yeah. the thing, Let's spread you know? the word to the world. Yep. Right. Um, and when it started initially, people don't realize they didn't have like weird sexual practices. It, uh, they're very, very strict. I mean, the, the, you know, young members couldn't even hold hands unless they were married. Um, so it, it was, but not that long after, um, in the early seventies, uh, my grandfather began to get these revelations. So, and I think what really happened was that this, a uh, young woman showed up, one of the new disciples, and um, her name she her name was Karen Zerby, but she took on the name Maria, and became his secretary. And so then he uh, he wanted to take her as a second wife. So obviously, this is not really in line with traditional church uh, practices and teaching, depending on what church you go to, I guess. Um, so he began to. Uh, have these revelations about um, something called the law of love. And of course, you have to understand this is also coming out of the era of the 60s, free love, free sex, everybody's running around at Woodstock, you know, my mom went to Woodstock, and she was a hippie. So it's, you know, it's that era. But my grandfather began to have these revelations that um, the verse in the Bible that says, you know, basically, God's only law is love, uh, that that meant that Nothing was wrong if it was done in love. That love was the only law. So um, this began to expand to, uh, you know, being able to take a second wife. Um, began, it's opened up to having sex outside of marriage. And then that also began the, he had started practicing this with the, this young wife, this, this new wife. Um, well, mistress, I guess, um, because he was already married to my grandmother at the time. But he began to do a practice, test out a practice 
and write letters about it called flirty fishing where he, he and his wife would go to clubs and bars and she would flirt with men and dance with them and then sometimes take them home and have sex with them and then bring them to him and have him uh you know and they would talk to them about jesus and and um and so this practice that he began to institute and tell all the other followers that they had to do it um and was as a way to it was considered sacrificing yourself right for because he said well sex is a need just like you know the bible says to give people food and shelter you know and clothes it's like well sex is a bodily need you can see where this is coming from yep. for a man um so you know you need to sacrifice yourself to the women uh and give the man this and then he can you know so that he can be open to hearing about jesus and and so on and so forth um, but really, it became a way to get donations for the group and to get uh, businessmen, wealthy businessmen, to help support the homes and support the, these women. So it was almost um, prostitution in essence. It, it, yes. Yeah. So, so his wife, actually, I'm tracking with you, his wife would go out to the bars and pick up men. And whether they converted to Jesus or not, they would pay or donate whatever for the sex. Yes. And so uh, actually... The, the group got in trouble legally in a lot of countries for prostitution. The authorities uh, would show up and raid the homes and stuff. And they raided the home in which my grandfather was at, at one point, um, based on claims of prostitution. So the, the cover of the book where it has this hook and the female symbol on it is because um, within the literature, and you can, you can go online and look at this. It's, it's uh, xfamily.org. Dot org. They have thousands of pages of the book of uh, my grandfather's writings and literature. And uh, there were all of these letters in the seventies about flirty fishing and the images uh, they used cartoons to, you know, which is a great thing. Very smart. I mean, my grandfather was quite brilliant in his own way. Yeah. Um, he used cartoons as a way to communicate the messaging. So there was all these images of like, women you know naked women like being like stuck through the chest with a big hook um you know being dangled out there for men um there were other really horrible images of uh you know like when naked women sacrificed on a cross um saying that you need to sacrifice your body like jesus did um and so of course i grew up with these images because um they were also in all of our children's comic books <laughs> So, you know, um, the sense was that there was nothing wrong with sex and um, which, you know, and, 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 you know, the, the messaging was, you know, sex is good and godly and healthy and normal. And we don't want you to grow up to be ashamed of it or, you know, have these kind of inhibitions and so on, which is all valid. For sure. That um, in and of itself is perfect. But um, when you're talking about like little, little kids, like, I mean, my first coloring book was about sex. Like, where do I come from with fully nude images of, you know, adults, uh, you know, engaging in sex and stuff and all the organs. And um, I write about it in the book, you know, I was like, I get annoyed because it was, I had to color it all in, in one color, basically. It was like really oh, wow. boring. Um <laughs> Because they're all naked, but it, you know. So, <laughs> what color did you choose? I'm sorry, we need a little comic relief here. What color? Did you <laughs> well, I mean, it was beige. That was there you go. So, oh, so it was flesh tone appropriate. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, and that was three years old. 
So I write in the book, I didn't know, that wasn't a time I didn't know like about sex. I don't even remember, you know? And one of my early uh, memories is, you know, just like four years old is my, my mother actually doing a demonstration on my father and showing me like how a guy comes and stuff. And so this kind of knowledge, I think, and, and done in the way it was done was very, um, it's just knowledge that kids don't need to have, right? It's one thing when you're, when you're like over-sexualizing young children and you're just pushing that in their face all the time versus, you know, just saying, okay, this is an adult thing. And, you know, if you come and you have questions and you answer the questions, you know, versus, you know, it was in our literature, it was in my comic books, it was like everywhere. Like, you know, my favorite child story at, as, a, as a little kid um, they start coming out with this uh, novelization of Heaven's Girl. And I loved Heaven's Girl. I mean, she was our hero. I was like eight years old. And in the first episode, you know, she's gang raped by a bunch of the Antichrist soldiers before they throw her into a, a dungeon. I mean, wow! it's just, you know, it's like, why are you giving this to kids and the idea is that she's supposed to submit herself and she's a 15 year old girl in this uh in the comic right and um she's supposed and like while they're raping her she's like whispering in their ear about jesus to try to save them you know and it's like oh my god how old you were go you back and read this stuff. no kidding how old were <laughs> you when, when with one with the demonstration how old were you uh, I was Which, four. You're four. You were four when you had this very visual demonstration with your mom and dad. Yes. And so, but it, it got worse because um, my grandfather, um, due to his own perversions, I believe, because he was, he did have uh, issues with this. And, and, and this is documented by his own daughters um, that it was happening with them when they were little. So before the family even started. Um, uh, of like sexual interaction with little girls, right? P pedophilia. And so he was also teaching at that time that any kind of sexual contact is okay, including adults with children. And so they wrote a book called the book, uh, the Davidito book, which was uh, the son he had, <laughs> Well, kind of with his new wife, but technically he wasn't the father, he, the father of the, the child. But I mean, he claimed him that this is the new prince and the heir apparent. And because his older children were, including my father, were pushed out, you know, when Maria, uh, as she kind of gathered power. Um, but Davidito, the Davidito book was basically like a manual. <laughs> they say it's a manual on pedophilia. Um, just like, uh, just really terrible over sexualization and, and, you know, sexual contact. And, and sadly, um, this young man, um, years later when he left the group, he, he was so traumatized by it all that, um, uh, he actually, uh, killed one of his nannies who had sexually abused him. Uh, he was trying to kill his mother, but she didn't show up and then killed himself. And it was very big news. It was in, you know, early 2000s. And um, this was just a really, it was really sad to see, you know, that kind yeah. of play out all the way to the end. Um, but, and, and that had an impact, very big impact on me at the time when that happened, um, which I also write about in the book. But uh, 
so what began to happen is that uh, children were, and I, I had my own experience with like an adult man um, when I was like six, and I write about that. Um, and so this went on for some years. It wasn't, people thought, oh, well, you know, if the kids are happy to do it, like, you know, we just ask them and they want to do it, that's okay, right? They don't realize that children cannot consent. And this is part of the issue. It is impossible for a child to consent. And when I created this framework, I can show people exactly the points that are being violated, right, by that. So that even if I'm talking to a group like this, I can express to them why this ideology cannot be correct, right? Um, and so... Uh, and so I had I had my own experiences of this, like, you know, child sexual abuse with uh, with men in the group uh, when I was a kid. And it had a very strong impact on me. And um, I think later on, when I was about 10 years old, they banned the practice in the group because um, just getting too much attention from the authorities and also some of the first group of kids, you know, which I was one of the younger ones of the first kind of crop of children were becoming teenagers and hmm. were expressing the really bad impact this kind of thing had had on them. And, you know, they were expressing that they felt traumatized by that. So, um, you know, the group did shift gears in that sense. And so it banned any kind of adult child sexual contact. And if you persisted in that, you would be excommunicated. Um, but of course, you had a lot of people now in the group who were, uh, you know, there was a lot of people who I think they, they weren't necessarily, um, they didn't have that particular perversion, right? Sometimes they just did it because they thought they were supposed to or, or whatever. But then you also had people who were actually like really pedophiles and, you know, they continued to abuse children or them or their own children or other things like that um, for years afterwards until maybe they got kicked out. So it was, it, it created some, I think, deep traumas for a lot of young people. But then the issue was, like as I got older, it wasn't that it was, it became this issue more of the manipulation and the, and the coercion of sexual abuse, like I said. And that was true. And that didn't really stop, right? That, that didn't end because it was part of the ethos. And what was that ethos? The ethos was that your body did not belong to you, that you did not own yourself. So anything that they thought that you should do um, that was right. That was God's will, you know, and that was really the core of corruption. And the other thing that was happening was, you know, this was an apocalyptic cult where they were saying uh, the end is coming any day. Uh, Jesus is coming back. The Antichrist maybe has already risen in secret. And my grandfather had gotten prophecies that um, that the Antichrist would come back in 1990, sorry, that Jesus would return in 1993, which meant the Antichrist had to arise seven years before that, right? So all, all of us growing up, we didn't think we were going to live to be adults. I mean, my parents didn't think they were ever going to be old. 
you know, we all thought we were going to die in the tribulation or go up, you know, just Jesus when I was, you know, a teenager. So nobody prepared for anything for the future. Nobody had property. Nobody thought about retirement. Nobody, you know, you could, you were just constantly living on this knife's edge of um, both economically, which is why I have a strong focus in my work on what I do too economically is, uh, and, and emotionally. Like, I mean, when I was a little kid, I was thinking about, you know, I would lay in bed at night and I would think, okay, so what happens if the Antichrist soldiers come and I like hide and escape, but then I'm on my own and everyone else is in jail and how am I going to get back? Well, <laughs> you know, fantasy, what am I going to run away sure. to, yeah. you know? I mean, it's and, typical and, style of dreams that kids would have, you know, you know, except theirs might be about, you know, Harry Potter or something like that. And they're dreaming they're, they're in Hogwarts, you know, and the Dementors are coming to get them. It's very similar, but Yours was perpetuated by, I'm so curious about these comic books that you read and this constant mental barrage of all this imagery and all this ethos. Were those an internal publication? Where did these come from? They were internal publication. So one of the strengths of this organization, because my grandfather went into hiding so early on, the really the entire communication network was through the mail. And so every couple of weeks, we would get a package in the mail, which would have uh, the latest letters uh, from my grandfather with, you know, the newest revelations. Um, and then also, you know, they started producing because because the group had so many children um, uh, because they believed in not having birth control and then everyone was having sex yeah. all the time. You know, I mean, the group got to the point where it was like, two-thirds kids and so um there was a huge focus on the kids so they began to produce a lot of uh, material so the other thing is that um outside influence and material was not permitted you just so they had my next question you know with everybody living in normal society how did how how was that they prevented so they weren't living in normal society and we didn't have the internet then either remember yeah. Um, so people lived communally in small homes, anywhere from 10, 20, 30 people in a home to, I mean, some of the large ones were like 200 people, but they lived communally. They were separated from society. They didn't have jobs. They didn't go to school. We weren't allowed to go to school. Um, there was a couple of times they, when we were very young that they allowed us to go to school as a way to kind of not me, but my older siblings. And then that was cut off and it was all homeschooling. Um, and so the, the group was actually very good with early childhood education, Montessori methods. The kids were reading like one, two, three years old. Um, it was very good in that sense, but you know, a few more grades later, that was very little, uh, it was considered, you didn't really need anything past like a sixth grade education. You just needed to be able to read, write and, you know, do math, uh, if you were going to, uh, basically just be a missionary your whole life. Right. So, um, we weren't, there was no, uh, there was no like junior school. There was no high school. There was nothing above that. And you weren't allowed to read outside books or novels. So everything was produced within the group, story tapes, um, songs. They wrote a lot of songs. They had a lot of song tapes. Um, it was a very, it was a very creative group, I guess you could say. Um, they produced a ton of material, all these comic books. I mean, we had stacks of books like this, of these comic books produced by the family. 
And they would take like the adult letters and turn them into some more simplified comic form for the children. So, um, you know, in that sense, but, but for me, I, I struggled even as a kid because I would just be bored. I'd be, you know, like anytime like a new story come out, I was so excited, but you know, otherwise you're just kind of reading the same sort of stuff over and over and over again. And that's, that's all you got. You know, I mean, the first time I read a novel, I was 10 and I, I found this novel that was, um, that someone was throwing away because we weren't supposed to have them. And it was called The Secret Garden. And I hid, I hid it up in the loft and I would sneak up there and I would read it. And oh, it just, for me, it just opened this whole world. I fell in love. I was like, oh my God, stories like this exist. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Until it got confiscated. But, um, you know, oh, that, you that well. like peaked my, that peaked my, um, my, you know, like, my thirst, I guess, for that. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's kind of the background on that's on, wild. Yeah. on this organization. Yeah, I, I was curious as you taught and you address this too, because if everyone, I know everyone was living communally, but if they were sent out as, as missionaries across the world, surely there must've been some contact with society, especially since this all started with your grandfather's wife, your, your grandmother going into bars how how would this organization recruit new members? Uh, so it wasn't my grandfather's wife was not my grandmother. This was the second wife, oh, the, the one second. who was the I same age okay. as my parents. Um, now the no, we were out all the time talking to people, but the difference, and we would have we'd had hundreds of visitors to our house. Um, but you're only interacting or communicating with them from the role of I'm teaching you about Jesus or about the end time. You're not really making friends with them because you can't because they are outside. They are the world. They are the cis. We had a term for them called systemites, right? So you don't trust the systemites. You don't um, talk to them about anything going on. Like all oh, the children were taught from a very young age. You know, we would, we knew what we could and couldn't talk about with outsiders. Um, and it was very, very strict. So you were never, you never like had your guard down or relaxed or had like true friendships. Um, they might've thought that you were their friend because you would talk to them about their problems and their issues so that you could help them with, you know, by, by preaching to them. But um, that was really the only interaction we had. I mean, my family was uh, the Von Trapp family of Asia. We sang all over China, <laughs> Hong Kong, Macau, radio, TV, hospitals, you know, so I grew up doing that from, you know, before I was two years old. Um, so we were always out interacting in that sense, but a very one directional interaction, well, one sided interaction. Yeah. Um, so that was a, was a interesting, a lot of crazy stuff. And I, I, I go into it in the book. There's a lot of I mean, just all the different things and, and my first experience coming to America when I was like 12 and, uh, you know, my, when did my mother shift for you, you know, what, what age were you like? This just doesn't feel right anymore. So actually something happened that was quite a shift for me when I was 12, my, my, my parents were forcibly separated, which they would do this. Um, cause they were like, you know, you need to put God first and stuff. And so, and then my mother, we ended up in Thailand. 
my mother ended up having a breakdown and then we ended up going to the US and we got ex accidentally excommunicated. Accidentally? Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, which I describe how that happened, which was kind of crazy. So it's my mother, myself, I'm 12 and two like baby siblings that we had, that I had. And, um, and so I had to become the other adult and we had a camper that my grandfather had helped her get uh, and he wasn't, he wasn't in the family. And so I remember like I was having to beg in parking lots, like with a can, you know, like, you know how they go around saying, oh, here's, here's the wonderful work, missionary work we're doing. Please give donations. And, you know, but I was like begging in these parking lots at Safeway and stuff just to make a few dollars to feed my family. So we didn't have a way to support ourselves outside of the group. And my mother tried to get a job, but she hadn't finished, you know, her education. She left just before she finished high school, even though she was a very good student. Um, and so, you know, we just ended up in a really, really difficult position. We ended up staying with my grandmother for a while. And this was the first time I went to school. And so I managed, I went to one semester of school and it kind of was in its own way, life-changing for me to, to live like that. And then my father came and got us. Eventually we went back to the farm, but Going through that experience and, and watching my mother kind of also lose her faith in the family, right? Not in the doctrine, not in the word, but in the leadership and in the people who were kind of putting down these directives and controlling people's lives and manipulating them and, and just making decisions that were obviously <laughs> really wrong, you know? Um, so that shifted things for me too, in that sense. And my parents became less like parents and more like just human beings that needed help, mm. you know? So, I mean, I grew up very, very fast. And so that, that shifted things. And even though I went back into the family and I was in the family for years afterwards, um, there was a way in which I knew that it was up to me. I couldn't rely on other people. I couldn't rely on my parents. I couldn't, you know, and things began to happen. You began to see how, um, you know, your trust is abused and taken advantage of. And so in that sense, but I didn't know that the doctrines were wrong because this was really all I'd ever known. It wasn't even until I was out of the group for some years that I was able to look back and reassess. So I had to create a new, when you're, when that's all you've known, one way of looking at the world is all you know, you actually have to have time to recreate, to create a different framework for your worldview so that you have a different platform to stand on to actually look back and observe what you believed. And that, that process takes some time. And when I left, I left because I, I actually became depressed. I just didn't see a future for myself. I think this is what depression is, typically, when you don't see a future for yourself that you want to live. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's like, oh my God, is this my life? Um, and I had... After some of my experiences with books and things like that, I knew I had this like burning desire to go to college. And so when I, I 
left the group, it was to do that. It was to go to college. That was my dream. And that was what I was fighting for. Your typical college age, 18 around that time? No, I was 23. Okay. I wow. just turned 23. But I looked very young, so uh, <laughs> nobody thought anything of it. Sure. <laughs> I'd had a whole world of experience yeah. before. Your I was quite different than my classmates. Sure. Your parents stayed in when you left? Uh, my, so at this time, some people were starting to leave. My mother, uh, actually, I didn't know it at the time I left, but she actually, she kind of secretly was like leaving at the time too. Um, but we weren't living together. So, you know, cause I left home very young as we all did. We all would move to another country with, <laughs> in another home. Um, uh, my father stayed in for some time after some years afterwards, but, uh, you know, after my grandfather died in 1994 and his wife took over, Maria, I think there was a way in which some of the old guard, um, you know, some of them were still very committed and very dedicated, but I think some of them were kind of like, oh, well, you know, a bit disappointed, you know, that the yeah. <laughs> Jesus hadn't come yet. And of course they had all kinds of excuses for it, but of course it's past 1993 at this point. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy to me. Cause I mean, I, I grew up in a very spiritual home and, you know, non-denominational kind of thing and very foundational. And it's just interesting. Cause that was one of the things I remember was that scripture of no man knows the day or the hour. Yeah. And that's, mind-boggling that somehow they were able to i mean there's there's cults all over the world that have done this but that was one of the things that always just tripped me up was like how do they know you know how do they just eliminate this one scripture and they're like oh you know what this jesus just came and spoke to me personally i'm like really cool what kind of drugs were you on that night was he doing <laughs> <Right>. with you <laughs> <laughs> right or even just like all of the, i mean i remember when i was in college i finally went back and i started researching my boyfriend actually like made me turn around and face it because at this point, I was just like, leave it all behind and just go forward with all my strength. Um, but I was like, okay, well, was my grandfather's interpretation of the law of love accurate when we really like look at it? Because I mean, we had memorized hundreds of verses, yeah. um, supposedly on these topics or supposedly supporting a certain interpretation. But when you go back and read them in the original context, I was like, does it really say that? I don't think it does you know like contextually For so sure. and that's a big issue with this type of interpretation is this cult and still so, going on today um it i mean it's gone through many iterations and that's one thing it's like changes its beliefs it changes its you know it's gone through many iterations well they kind of had to jesus didn't come in 1993 right <laughs> right <laughs> um but many other iterations i guess you yeah. could say um so now if you go online, it's called the Family International, and their website just says they're a community of Christian, you know, missionaries or whatever. They're basically loose, loosely, uh, it's basically been disbanded. Uh, I think Maria and her husband got too old to keep it up, so uh, I think it's basically been disbanded. They had put out a thing about not living communally and that it was okay to have jobs and stuff <laughs> because you have to think about all of these Go people figure. are my parents' age in their 70s and they don't have retirement. Yeah, They barely have social security, just like the bare minimum because they didn't work, right? I mean, I admire my mother because when she left, like me, she went back to school in her 50s and she ended up, like she worked really hard. She went and got a job and 
you know, put away money for retirement and, um, you know, she, and a lot of these people didn't. Yeah. A lot of these people didn't. They died. They were, or they were too old at that time. Faith, you've brought so much to the table today and so much to think about. I, I feel for you because of what you've been through. And I'm also grateful that you, that you had that boyfriend of yours that forced you to look back on everything because your mind is incredibly analytical and just be able to bring that experience to everybody to say, hey, this is what I learned. Incredible perspective. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me.